Jeremiah chapters 34 and 35 this evening. Uh, Again, we're talking in this general phase of Israel's history, actually the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been captured. They're already in conquest. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, the Babylonians are about to conquer the kingdom. We'll get right into it here, verse 1 of chapter 34. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah king of Judah and tell them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from his hand but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. This prophecy against King Zedekiah and the city of Jerusalem came in the 10th or the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had come against Jerusalem and they had circled the city in a siege. Siege warfare, especially in the ancient world, was a particularly horrible kind of warfare where an army would simply surround a city, prevent anything from coming in or out of it, and wait for them to surrender. They would surrender because of famine, they would surrender because the walls were broken down, Or they would surrender because of disease and they had no more strength to fight anymore. But eventually a city would surrender or the army would leave. It was one or the other. They were under siege. Now, we have to talk about something that will make it uh, help you understand something in this entire chapter. Verses 21 and 22 of this chapter give keys to understanding it in the context. You see, God said regarding the Babylonian army, look at verses 21 and 22, that they had gone back from Jerusalem, or they had gone back from Jerusalem, but that he would, and this is verse 22, command and cause them to return to this city. You see, the events of this chapter are in the context of something that's explained more fully in Jeremiah chapter 37, and this is what happened. In the final siege and conquest of Jerusalem, the Babylonian army came and surrounded the city and was ready to conquer them. Then, all of a sudden, they heard that the Egyptian army was coming up from the south to rescue Jerusalem and the Judean king, Zedekiah, because the king Zedekiah had been trying to make deals with the Judean king. Excuse me, with the king, uh, the pharaoh of, of Egypt. So when the Egyptian army came up from the south, the Babylonians, for a period, broke the siege of Jerusalem, went down, met the Egyptian army, and much of the events in chapter 34 happen in that time when the Babylonians had broken the siege. And do you understand what Jeremiah is telling King Zedekiah? Dude, they're coming back. You think God has delivered you. Now put yourself in the shoes of the prophet uh, Jeremiah here. Jeremiah had been prophesying, the Babylonians are going to destroy you. The Babylonians are going to destroy you. They're going to conquer the city. You may as well surrender. This is God's judgment upon us. The Babylonians are going to flatten us. That's what he's been preaching. 
the Babylonians come and surround the city and lay siege to it. And everybody say, oh, maybe Jeremiah was right. Maybe Jeremiah was right. And all the false prophets had been saying, don't worry, the Lord is going to deliver you. Don't worry, the Lord is going to deliver you. And then what happens? Very suddenly, the Babylonian army leaves. The false prophets are going, yes, we were right all along. Jeremiah is saying, you just wait. Oh, I know they left. They're coming back. And by the by, they did come back. They came back pretty quick. They went down south, whooped the Egyptians in a battle, and they came back and destroyed Jerusalem. But again, you've got to remember that context for this. Much of chapter 34 takes place during that time of the release from the siege when people thought we're rescued and we're okay. Instead, God says, look at verse 2, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. Despite the temporarily lifted siege, God wanted Zedekiah to know that the city and the kingdom would be conquered not only by the Babylonians, but by the will of God. Notice how he phrases it in verse 2. Verse 2 doesn't just say the Babylonians will conquer. God says, I will give this city. This wasn't the judgment of the Babylonians against Jerusalem. This was the judgment of Yahweh against Jerusalem. And by the way, Jerusalem was indeed burned with fire, just as prophesied. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 9 says this. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And the end result of it was, in verse 3, you shall not escape from his hand. Now listen, friends, sometimes when a city falls... Sometimes when a country is conquered, the king escapes. You know, if anybody's going to escape, shouldn't it be the king? So it's not always the case that the king is captured. Jeremiah looked Zedekiah in the face and he said, you're going down. You will be captured because you were put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. You rebelled against him. You will have to answer for your treason against King Nebuchadnezzar face To face is the phrase used there in verse 3. Now the same phrase was used in the chapter we looked at last week and I'll make the same point here tonight that I made last week. Friends, can you imagine how sobering it was for Zedekiah, the rebel king, to face the king over him? By analogy, can I say the king of kings? Nebuchadnezzar, and realize I have rebelled against this man and now I must face him face to face. This is the judgment that awaits those who rebel against God. You will face him face to face. You're not going to be judged by a bureaucracy. Some nameless clerk shuffling papers and stamping something and say, okay, here's your judgment. You will face God face to face and have to answer for what you've done. And I've talked to some people, I've read the writings of some people who actually believe that when they stand before God on the day of judgment, they're going to tell him a thing or two. Really? These poor, poor people, they have no understanding of who God is. 
They have no recognition of his holiness, of his majesty. How when men stand before God, every mouth is stopped. Have you ever stood before somebody who who was so great, at least in your eyes, maybe they weren't great, but in your eyes they were so great that you just couldn't say a thing? Uh, 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 uh. That's what it's going to be like when every human being who rebels against God, has to stand before him in judgment. Now, what a contrast that is to the wide-open welcome that God gives to his children when he sees them. So we see here a, a very powerful analogy of meeting the king face-to-face in judgment. Now, verse 4. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace, As in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so that shall they burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Now, Zedekiah had a terrible fate in front of him. You know what his terrible fate was? They took Zedekiah, and they took his two sons, and they murdered his sons right in front of his eyes. Then they gouged out the eyes of King Zedekiah. So that the last image he ever saw with his eyes were his two precious sons being murdered. Man, that's brutal. They put him in chains and took him back to Babylon, but at least he did not die by the sword. He died in relative peace, and it seems that God even ordained that there would be some recompense of Zedekiah, that he would be given a dignified, honorable burial, and that's what it mentions in verses 4 and 5. Now verse 6. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained in the cities of Judah. So Jeremiah spoke all these words with tremendous boldness. We saw last week that Zedekiah, excuse me, that Jeremiah was imprisoned by Zedekiah. And it was for just these kind of words that he was imprisoned. You know, Zedekiah wanted to believe the best. When the Babylonian army took off and and lifted their siege, yes, we're saved. Yes, we're okay. And when Jeremiah came along and said, you're not okay and you're going down, that was just the kind of word that would get the prophet in jail. But Jeremiah didn't care. He boldly prophesied. Now there's also a very interesting reference in verse 7 to the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah. Lachish and Azekah are interesting cities to archaeologists, especially Lachish. Lachish lies some 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And because of the Egyptian threat, Nebuchadnezzar had to secure the strategic points to the south before the complete conquest of Jerusalem. Now this is what he did. He conquered Lachish, he conquered Azekah, but he conquered Azekah first. And there's a remarkable archaeological find in Lachish. They call them the Lachish letters. There's actually a technical word for it that I can't pronounce all that well. But archaeologists discovered in a pit in Lachish the remains of about 1,500 casualties of Nebuchadnezzar's attack and the Lachish letters which were written on pieces of pottery. You know, just like you would use scratch paper, the Lachish letters written on pieces of pottery describe communications between Lachish and other cities saying, it's really striking, it's, it's sad, it's tragic. 
We don't see the signal files from Azekah anymore. They must be conquered. The Babylonians are now on their way here. It's like the last communiques from a city about to be devastated. And this is all fit in and confirmed by the archaeologist's work. Going on now to verse 8. Now with verse 8, we begin a second section of uh, chapter 34. You're going to find this interesting. Look at it here, verse 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set his male and female slaves, that set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. Now this is a remarkable thing. This seems to take place before the siege was lifted. Up through chapter 10, up through verse 10 of chapter 34, the Babylonian armies are still around Jerusalem. Now, if a vicious army is around your city walls and you know that your destruction is very close, isn't that the kind of motivator to try to get you to obey God? Isn't this kind of panic piety? You know, you're like, I got to do something. God, what do you want me to do? Suddenly, you're interested in getting right with God when your whole world is falling apart. So what did they do? They said, oh, well, well, where are we disobeying God? What should we do? What should we do? And they realized we have unjustly held on to our Hebrew female and male slaves. Let's let them go. That's why they say in verse 8, King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim liberty. At some time in his reign, likely when the Babylonians encircled the city, King Zedekiah proclaimed an emancipation for the Hebrew slaves in Judah. Now listen, friends. In Israel, as in the entire ancient world, there were people who worked for other people on the principle of servitude. They were slaves in some sense, though not necessarily in the brutal and degraded way that we usually think of slavery. In America, we have a certain conception of slavery that's shaped by our history. But if you think that Israelite slavery was really analogous to slavery in the South in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, you're mixing it up altogether. It wasn't the same thing at all. And let me say something else about this. Some people think, and you'll actually hear people say this, that the Bible is responsible for slavery. That if it wasn't for the Bible, there wouldn't be slavery in the world. Friends, that is about the most ignorant thing that a person can say or write. If that were the case, then cultures that had never been touched by the Bible, they should have no slavery, right? Cultures that have never been touched by the Bible, they should just live in peace and harmony and love for one another because they don't have that icky old Bible leading them astray. Friends, is that the case? Of course not. Slavery has been a universal among human experience throughout history. No, no, no. The question for the historian and for the honest observer is not why do cultures take slaves? The answer is, why do they set them free? And the reason why slaves are set free is because of biblical culture. That's not the reason why they're taken. 
And basically, in the Hebrew world, there were four basic ways that a Hebrew might become a slave to another Hebrew. I'll just give you the first and the most important, the broadest one, the one that covered most of the bases. Most Hebrew slaves became slaves because in extreme poverty, they sold their liberty. There were no bankruptcy courts in ancient Israel. When you had debts you couldn't pay, you had to sell yourself to servitude to somebody else to pay off the debt. It was a more formalized and, of course, a much more devoted kind of way of the old picture of having to wash the dishes in the restaurant because you couldn't pay the bill. Well, you can't pay the bill, so you can be my servant. You can do this servant until your debt is paid or in the strict regulations of slavery in the Hebrew world, you were a slave for a period of six or seven years. It's a little bit unclear because it says, you shall serve for six years, and in the seventh year you should be set free. What people debate about was at the beginning of the seventh year or the end of the seventh year. We're not exactly sure. But after a period of six or seven years, the slave was to be set free. The servitude was not to be forever. The ideas of man-stealing, the ideas of lifelong servitude, those concepts that many people have of slavery in our day, they simply do not apply to the practice of slavery in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, normally slavery was chosen or mutually agreed upon. It was of limited duration, and it was highly regulated. Now, even so, you had this group of Hebrew slaves, usually people who were bankrupt and sold into their own slavery. What did they do with them? Verse 10, they obeyed the word of King Zedekiah and they let them go. Because of Zedekiah's command, because of his leadership, they immediately set their slaves free. However, from the words following in the chapter it does not appear that they let their slaves free before the appointed time. Let let me tell you what I think is happening here. What they let free was the slaves that they had unjustly held on to past the six or seven years. This was a great sin in Judah and Jerusalem. God had strictly regulated this institution so that nobody should be in forced servitude for another six or seven years, for past six or seven years. But they said, no, we're going to make them serve longer. Zedekiah said, no, because the Babylonians are at the gate and we got to get right with God. We're going to obey God here. We're going to set those slaves free. We're going to do what God tells us to do. And the slaves said, thank you, that's great. Now, kind of the question is, Why did they do it? Well, if we're generous to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, we might say that they set the slaves free because they were desperate and they were sorry under the Babylonian siege and they repented of their prior sin. That's possible. It's possible that they said, God, we see our great sin We see that we haven't set these people free as we should. We're going to let them go. They're free now. That's possible. But to be honest, I don't think so. I think that this was as cold and calculating as you can imagine. Because you know the tough part about having a slave? You got to feed that slave. You got to take care of that slave. And you know what's really hard to do in a time of siege? Feed hungry mouths. You could see where slave owners would say, number one, 
I can't get access to my fields outside the city, so what good are my slaves? Number two, all I got to do is feed these guys. It's better for me if I set them free and I don't got to worry about providing for them. Go, you can be free. Friends, I have the feeling that they just set them free for their own convenience. That they just did it because it was good for them. And they dressed it up with some spiritual reasoning. But no, my friends, at the very best, this was cold and calculating Or at the worst, it was just an insincere thing that they did with a spiritual name upon it. So look at what happened in verse 11. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Do you get what happened here? Did you see that word in verse 11? Afterward, after what? After the Babylonians left. When the Babylonian army is surrounding Jerusalem, oh God, we'll do anything to get right with you. As soon as they leave, it's like, hey, bring the slaves back. Do you see how they were? Do you see the wickedness of this people? Do you see how offensive that kind of fake repentance is before God? You know what they did? They repented of their repentance. And they went back to the exact same oppressive sins that they had committed before. Friends, this was a horrible, terrible thing that they did. They changed their minds as soon as the Babylonian siege was lifted. When the threat was gone, there was no more need to radically repent. And God forbid we should repent unless we absolutely have to. Isn't that the attitude of a lot of people? Oh, I'll repent when I get caught. Oh, I'll repent when there's no other way. Friends, this heart is in me and it's in you. We need to walk in the new heart that's given us by Jesus Christ. The heart that loves and wants to please God. We need to look for this better work of Jesus in our life than they had under this old covenant. But this is something I want you to think about. And this makes me scratch my head. How did they get those freed slaves back into servitude? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. You can think of all sorts of hypothetical ways. But how do you get somebody who's set free back into servitude? Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because by the law of God, by the command of the king, and by the action of their former masters, these people were set free, yet they were forced back into servitude. And I don't know what power, I don't know what threat they used to force them back. Maybe, and I'll just speculate here, maybe they worked very hard to persuade them that they weren't free after all and that they had to continue to live as slaves. May I make a spiritual analogy out of this? If you are born again by God's Spirit, if He has given you new life in Jesus Christ, you are set free. You have the glorious liberty of the children of God, but let me tell you, you have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil, and one of the biggest lies they want to beat down upon you is that you may as well just live as a slave because that's what you are anyway. You need to be able to have the discernment and the strength and sometimes the assistance from a brother or sister to just kick the devil in the teeth and say, stop lying to me about this stuff. I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm free. I'm not a slave. 
because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Friends, do you realize what a wretched thing it is for a person who has tasted freedom to be drawn back into slavery? No, may it never be. May it never be among God's people. Verse 12. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjugation to be your male and female slaves. You know, I love what God does the first thing in verse 13. He goes, listen, every one of you used to be slaves back in the land of Egypt. You should have more sympathy to those who have been sold into slavery. And I told you exactly how to handle your slaves in my word, but you didn't do what I told you. I told you to set them free after six years. But then he says, verse 16, you turned around and you profaned my name. Friends, going back to disobedience is an unholy thing before God, especially because of the terrible oppression that it placed upon other people. So look at what God says in verse 17. This is going to blow your mind. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you. Now, if you were to stop right there, you go, hey, that's pretty cool. No, not cool. Keep on going. Says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. You know, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. The people of Jerusalem had a great opportunity to obey God and to do good to their fellow Hebrews by proclaiming liberty to them. By the way, don't we under the new covenant, don't we have a marvelous opportunity to proclaim liberty to people in the name of Jesus? Jesus Christ is the great liberator. He is the faithful liberator. And let me tell you, he never sets somebody free and then brings them back into bondage. He never does that. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Not like these people. But notice this. God says, verse 17, Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. You want liberty? Okay, I'm going to liberate my hand of protection from you, God says. I'm no longer going to protect you. And you're going to be, to use an expression, thrown to the wolves. The sword, pestilence, famine, That's the kind of liberty you're going to enjoy. Verse verse 18. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life. 
Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of heaven and the birds, beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. God appointed a special judgment upon those who made a covenant and broke it. Can I just tell you, God cares about the promises we make. God cares about the vows we make. And I would like to ask you to do something in your own time with God. The next time you get down for some time of prayer and just, just communing with the Lord, which I hope is very soon, I want you to ask God in the spirit of the psalm that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In the spirit of that psalm, I like you. I'm asking you as your pastor. Ask God, God, are there any broken vows in my life that I need to set right with you? Just because you've forgotten about your broken vow doesn't mean God has. And I believe that this is oftentimes a spiritual hindrance to many people. There's a broken vow in their life that they've neither set right. Look, if it's a vow and it's a wise vow, it's a proper vow, well then start doing it. And ask God to forgive you for not doing it. But listen, it's possible to make a foolish vow, isn't it? Well then repent of making the foolish vow. And ask God to forgive you for that. And consider yourself clear of it. But do not ignore your foolish vows. Your broken vows. Get them right before God. God was going to judge them for their broken vows. Matter of fact, the Egyptians were going to be defeated. And the Babylonians were going to come back. Look at verse 22. I will command and cause them to return to this city. Because of that Egyptian threat, the Babylonian army had gone and they repented of their repentance in the city of Jerusalem. God says, they are coming back. Get ready for them. Now in chapter 35, we have a happier story. Chapter 34 was about covenant breakers, promise breakers. Should we get something a little more encouraging and look at some promise keepers, some covenant keepers here? Look at verse one of chapter 35. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. What's this all about? Well, first you've got to understand something about the Rechabites. We don't know much about the Rechabites, but this is kind of what we do know. They were a radically committed sect among the Israelites who emphasized a nomadic life like going back to the old days when Israel was in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Their roots actually go all the way back to Jethro, the Kenite, the father-in-law of Moses. Judges 1, chapter 16 tells us how the descendants of the Kenites... Uh, the descendants of Jethro, the Kenites, came from the area of Jericho and lived among the wilderness of Judah to the south. They were nomads, so they moved around from place to place from time to time. 
But somewhere along the line, they had an inspirational father named Jonadab. We're going to read about Jonadab in a little bit. By the way, Jonadab is also called Jehonadab in another place in 2 Kings chapter 10. Jehonadab was an associate of a guy named Jehu. Now, I don't expect you to know immediately who Jehu was in the Old Testament, but you should learn a little bit about Jehu. Jehu was a crazy man, and God lifted him up to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. And Jehu was nuts in the way that he did it. He was just like a crazy man bringing down judgment as God's instrument. Jehu had an associate, this guy named Jehonadab. And so Jehonadab was a radical guy, radically committed to the Lord, radically against idolatry, radically for purity. And we're going to find out some of the commands he made later on. But his descendants were the Rechabites. Now, it's possible that the Rechabites were not only a family clan, but that they were also sort of a group that you could join. You know, sort of a monastic or an extreme group. They had this thing where they were nomads and moved from place to place. But at the same time, they lived as if they belonged to another age. And they were like known for their radical purity and morality. You know what they were like? They were like a cross between hippies and the Amish. Think of like a dude in tie-dye with a straw hat. They were nomads like hippies going from place to place just in simple and touch with things. They were like the Amish in that they lived a life from like a previous age hoping to be in radical obedience to God. Now what did God tell Jeremiah to do? Invite them to the temple. Did you see verse 2? And give them wine to drink. Give them wine to drink? What are you talking about? Well look at verse 3. Then I took Jazaniah the son of Jeremiah... Uh, the son of Habizanah, his brothers and all his sons and all the house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Iglada, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. Right, you got to imagine the scene here. First of all, it was done at the temple in a public place. This is a very public ceremony. Secondly, it was being led by Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the heavy dude. Third, they brought all the Rechabites. Bring the whole clan here to me. I'm going to make this invitation. Jeremiah goes. He brings them. There's a bowl of wine. He draws it from a cup. And he gives it to the leader of the Rechabites. And what does he say? He says, Drink wine. I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I told them to drink wine. Now, there's something you've got to remember about this, as we'll see in a minute here. The Rechabites were absolutely committed to not drinking wine. Jeremiah knew this. But notice what happens next. We'll just go on to the next verse, verse 6. But they said, we will drink no wine, For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. 
Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have a vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass... When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for the fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwelt at Jerusalem. This was the response of the leader of the Rechabites. What does he say? No way. We don't drink wine. We're not going to do it. And we're not going to do it because our father, Jonadab, told us not to do it. Now, friends, this is very interesting. Because the sons of Jonadab here passed the test and refused the wine. There was a lot of pressure on them. The public nature of the ceremony, the presence of their entire clan, the prominence of the prophet Jeremiah, being in the temple and all its surroundings, all of these things added pressure to them. I'll give one other added pressure, and this is kind of a big one. They were instructed by Jonadab don't live in the cities, live out as nomads in tents. They were living in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Necessity. Nebuchadnezzar and his raiders were out on the land. It wasn't safe. They had to come into the safety of the city. Don't you realize that it would have been very easy for them to say, well, we compromised on this one point out of necessity. What's the big deal if we compromise on the other points? But they didn't compromise. The Rechabites, the son of Jonadab, they said, no, we're not going to drink the wine. Now, friends, please understand, it's very important to hear this. The point was not strictly the drinking of or not drinking wine. It was obedience to the teaching of their spiritual father, Jonadab. Jeremiah did not use this as a point to talk about drinking wine, but about obedience, obedience to their spiritual father, Jonadab, and you'll see the point in a little bit. But may I talk for a moment just about drinking wine, about drinking alcohol. Friends, the Bible does not teach that it is a sin to drink at all. I think it's a point of wisdom for Christian leaders to not drink, and that's why I don't. But I can't tell you the Bible commands you to consume no alcohol. But I'll tell you with all my strength, the Bible commands you to not get drunk. And if you are overindulging in alcohol, it's a sin, and you need to repent of it, and you might just need some help. This is serious, friends. Do you know why it's serious? Not only for the damage that it does to your own life before God, but for all the other sins it leads people into. Isn't that true of alcohol? It's not just the sin itself, but all the other sins it leads people into in that point. So friends, we gotta take this very seriously. Again, as your pastor, I gotta be a Bible guy. I can't make up rules where the Bible says them. I cannot tell you, the Bible says you must be an absolute abstainer. I think that's a wise life choice, but I can't tell you the Bible commands it. But I can tell you the Bible commands it. You do not get drunk. And if you do, if you're getting drunk, if you're getting buzzed, then friends, you've got to realize this is not right and I need to make this right before God. But here's the other point I want to make. 
even though the point here in Jeremiah chapter 35 is not about drinking or not drinking, it's about obedience to their spiritual father, God honored the Rechabites for not drinking. And it is possible sometimes when Christians feel such a liberty to partake of alcohol that they put pressure upon those who don't want to drink that they should. Let me tell you, don't do that. If you feel that you have the liberty to moderately consume alcohol, and let me say, this is what I tell people, if you're going to consume alcohol, you should be conspicuous in your moderation. Anybody who sees you drink should say, wow, look, they didn't even drain the glass. Wow, they didn't ask for another. Wow, look, you should be conspicuous in your moderation. But look, let me say this. Don't you ever tease or mock somebody for not drinking if they're a believer. Because sometimes Christians do that. I wonder if they do it out of a guilty conscience. But don't you ever tease or mock somebody for not drinking. Because God didn't tease or mock the Rechabites. He honored them for their not drinking. This is what it is in the text. All right, verse 6. This is what Jonadab said to them. You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. And again, it was part of a whole picture, a larger pattern of sacrifice and self-denial. They weren't supposed to build houses. They weren't supposed to plant fields and vineyards. Why? Because they wanted to live this ascetic, separated life. This was not God's command over all Israel, but it was what the Jonadab descendants felt like they needed to do, and they did it, and God honored them for their obedience. Now, verse 12, here's the contrast. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed, for to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. You see the contrast God's trying to make? Here the Rechabites obey their spiritual father, Jonadab, from a couple hundred years before. And he's a man and they obey him. Yet you won't obey me and I'm God. There's really a pretty radical contrast there. Verse 16 says, this people has not obeyed me. This is a contrast. They would obey the Rechabites, their spiritual father, but the people of Judah would not obey God. And look at all the contrast. The Rechabites obeyed a fallible leader. The people of Judah disobeyed the eternal God. The Rechabites received their command once from their leader and obeyed. The people of Judah received their command from God again and again and again, and they still disobeyed. The Rechabites obeyed regarding earthly things, but the people of Judah disobeyed in regard to eternal things. And The Rechabites obeyed their leader's commands about over 300 years. The people of Judah continually disobeyed their God. And friends, the Rechabites were going to be rewarded 
the people of Judah were going to be judged. Verse 17, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard and I have called them, but they have not answered. Again, the contrast is plain. The Rechabites obeyed Jonadab, you won't obey me. Verses 18 and 19. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Isn't that beautiful? God didn't mock the Rechabites. He honored them. He honored them because they kept the command of their spiritual father, Jonadab. And he said, they shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. They would have a special service and a special standing before God forever. So do you see the contrast between chapter 34 and 35? The Rechabites were covenant keepers. The people of Judah who took back their slaves were covenant breakers. Promise breakers, promise keepers, you see the contrast between the two. But maybe I should just leave with this last thought. You know who the ultimate promise keeper is, of course? Jesus himself. Listen, um, it's within the nature of humanity to fail to keep our promises. Now, when we do, we humbly confess and repent before God. We make it right wherever we can, and we go on from there. God doesn't want to condemn us for us. He wants us to deal with it and move on. But aren't you happy, right along with me, that God never breaks his promises? That Jesus never gives up on his vows? That we can stand before him and trust him and know him that he's the covenant. That can be your confidence today. Jesus, I need help. I am weak in keeping my vows and promises. You are strong. You are the covenant keeper. Father, that's our prayer here tonight. And Lord, I especially want to pray that you would do a genuine spiritual work in every one of us here as we take some time to pray before you, and to ask you if there are um, broken vows that we need to address in our life. If that's the case, Lord, teach us, show us. We need this, Lord. So pour out your great grace upon us, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, Jesus, for being the ultimate keeper of the covenant. We praise you here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand for the last song.